Sherry, thank you very much for having a chance to sit down and talk about the Nikkei Center. Let's start with yourself. How did, how did you get involved in museums? Well, let me start with my origin story, which is I'm born in Japan, and I was adopted into Canada by a Nikkei family. So Nikkei means of Japanese ancestry, and the family that I was adopted into, um, my parents, my adopted parents, were, uh, had tried to have children for a decade and couldn't. And so when they looked to adopt, they were hoping to adopt an Asian baby and put the word out to a distant family in Japan. So that's how we were connected. And uh, I arrived in Canada when I was three. They were living in Lethbridge, Alberta. Many Japanese Canadians ended up um, in southern Alberta in the prairies. and. They promised, it was a private adoption, they promised my birth grandmother that they would try to keep me in the language and in the culture. Had Nikkei Center existed then, their job would have been super easy, but it didn't. So they very quickly uh, moved our little family to Vancouver. So I don't really remember Lethbridge other than visits since. And so my educational background, I'm a graduate of Sauter at UBC. and. My original work was actually in the contemporary art gallery world. I didn't actually cross the threshold here until 2010 when I took on a 13-month contract to be their acting executive director covering a mat leave. And I'm embarrassed to say I actually didn't know this place existed. But the museum director curator at that time, Beth Carter, who has since moved on to the Bill Reed Gallery, uh, she had come here after a couple of decades at the Glenbow Museum in Calgary. And I had come from the contemporary art world, so we just became fast friends. And even though I was the acting executive director and didn't have that much uh, influence or involvement in the museum during that contract, we worked together uh, that year, it would have been 2010, 2011, and then I kept in touch with Nikkei Center um, through a variety of contracts and in 2013 Beth was reducing her work week or her hours and our um, executive director who I had covered the leave for decided to become a full-time parent so the executive position became available again and I um, was referred to, it was, this is really interesting, I had already done the job, but I was referred to the hiring committee by a recruitment uh, group that I was listed with and made the cut, made the short list, but at the 11th hour, Roger Lemire, who uh, has been the acting, or has been the executive director from 2013 till 2019, was a successful candidate. I had about a half an hour of disappointment only because I'm highly competitive, but then I was actually quite relieved because the running of this center is huge and it really takes um, dedicated focus, whereas my passion is in the arts and culture side of things and as a curator, that's my background. So um, I was able to work with both Roger Lemire and Beth Carter because they created a position called project manager. And, and then Beth was recruited by the Bill Reed Gallery. And when her job became available, I again competed. And this time, I was the top candidate. So in 2015, I became the director curator of the museum. And it is 
the culmination of everything I ever learned how to do, including my um, awareness of my heritage and, you know, just discovery of, of all of that. And I feel that it's a, a job that allows me to do some really important work in not only in this city and in this country, but um, for my family and all the families. <laughs> we have a very small but dedicated team. And even though there's been a real mix of backgrounds and um, demographics and all of that, um, right now we have a very relatively young team and primarily um, third and fourth generation. So it's, uh, it's an exciting time to mm -hmm. be a part of Nikkei Center. And we do offer language and culture. and Not language directly, but the Gladstone Japanese Language School is a tenant in this building. And we have offered some adult conversation courses too. And I also do get to um, brush up on my conversational because half of the staff speak Japanese fluently and the other half get to practice. <laughs> it, it's all great. Now, the history of the Nikkei Center, walk us through that, the, the development of the collection and to, to where it is today. Yes, so 2020 is the 20th anniversary of this place. And 20 years ago, uh, in September, when they opened, the museum was a tenant. It was called the Japanese Canadian National Museum at the time. Now the uh, origin of that actually predates this place by a couple of decades. So in the late 70s, when there was a real uh, re renewal of interest in rebuilding the culture, in quote unquote coming home to the West Coast for some, um, there was a real need seen by the second generation, or Nisei, to preserve the immigrant Issei first generation stories. So a group of dedicated volunteers started just with oral cassette recordings, you know, digital recordings, oral histories. And that was the formation of what would become the museum. It was a volunteer group and they had um, a couple of different offices in Vancouver before becoming a tenant of the Nikkei Center. And then in 2002, the Japanese Canadian National Museum and the um, National Nikkei Heritage Center, which is what this building was originally called, merged and became one entity. So the museum was always, it was originally volunteer, then it became a society and a nonprofit um, corporation, and it's uh, been a professional museum with a growing archive founded on oral histories um, for over 35 years now, but in this physical location, and so had its first sort of professional trappings of gallery display space and a dedicated archive space with proper environmental controls and a proper research space um, 20 years ago. Because it started as a tenant, it was always intended to be temporary with future growth. But we are a not-for-profit, so it took... Um, I, when Beth Carter was here, she was originally hired for museum expansion, but she had such a, a task ahead of her to really bring the museum to best practices, to current standards. This would have been from 2009. 
um, before when she was here for six years, and she did an amazing job. So really cleaned up the archives, cleaned up the whole policies and procedures, um, started a uh, online database collection software, was brilliant at writing grants. A Vancouver Foundation grant enabled this museum to become the hub for collections in New Denver, which has the Interment Memorial Center, which is a national heritage site, but doesn't have a professional museum um, team. Uh, Kelowna or Kamloops, same thing. These are cultural pockets of Japanese Canadians that have small collections, but no professional uh, knowledge, care, all of that. Toronto, actually, which is professionally based, the Japanese Canadian Cultural Centre, but they really focus on being a heritage centre, and they have a large collection, but really had um, minimal resources. So we became the hub for all of that, and if you look on our website, under our uh, research and get to our collections hub, you can search our database, you can search uh, Toronto, Kamloops, and New Denver. For the last 20 years, the um, museum has really done the best, maximized on resources with really no more than two or three permanent staff. And actually, we're not that much bigger today. We rely a lot on summer student support, grant-funded research assistance, partnerships with universities, things like that. Um, and we've been very lucky with attracting um, dedicated and talented people. Um, we have an exhibition schedule, I guess, shall we say, that rotates between cultural, historical, and contemporary issues. We do draw from our permanent archive, but we also work with visual and contemporary artists, we work with community groups, we work with universities that do important research. So. Um, we were very lucky in 2017 to receive a private gift uh, by um, a dedicated sponsor, Yoshiko Karasawa, who is, her husband is Michael O'Dane, who may be more well known to the general public, but Yoshiko Karasawa has been a dedicated supporter of this center. She was one of the founding directors and specifically of the museum uh, for the past 20 years. Her million dollar gift, which we were able to leverage with uh, grants from Canadian Heritage, BC 150, all of that, enabled us to really rethink and reimagine all of our display resource archive spaces. Though so this task that Beth was given, which she was not able to complete because of lack of time, resources, and all of that, uh, finally came to fruition, and she was actually part of our building uh, consultant team hmm. back then and we reopened in 2019 so exactly a year ago in July we reopened with a uh, slightly enlarged temporary exhibit space which we've named after um, the Karasawa gallery display space and so Yoshiko's name is actually the Karasawa name is is above the door hmm. we have a separate now Charles H. Kadoda Resource Center for our archive team just the general wealth of information and knowledge that our small team has is um, something that we're able to offer. Our research archivist, who is actually a retired geriatric psychiatric nurse, but has, through her own journey to unearth her family history, 
um, became a self-taught genealogy expert in Japanese heritage in Canada, which is, which is a really specific, even if you go to Ancestry.com, they do not have mm -hmm. that much. They come to us, yeah. actually, whenever yeah, they need information absolutely. Yeah. on, on uh, Japanese ancestry in North America, in yeah. Canada. So uh, Linda has started a series with our team's encouragement on family history one-on-one, -on -one, where folks can book time with her. It's nominal. Right now, it's like a $25 fee to book time. She'll meet with you on Zoom or Skype or phone or email. And there's also a virtual package we've created where people can um, have a really curated look at what they need to know or complete forms, things like that, to access Library and Archives Canada, to access Koseki, which is the um, documentation in Japan, to, you know, all of the um, navigation is uh, really made efficient by the decades that Linda has put into her own family story, which she has yet to publish. She's still, you know, it's like the, the cobbler's children have no shoes, you know, like she's exactly. really helped so many people find their own stories and she's um, yet to put the finishing touches on hers. But I checked in with her recently and um, she was delighted to report that she's had excellent uptake, primarily from fourth generation mm -hmm. Uh, Japanese Canadians who probably don't even look Japanese. Yeah. You know, most um, folks of that generation are either Hapa, half, or mm -hmm. or of even more mixed yeah. heritage, just given the trajectory of the Japanese Canadian story yeah. in Canada. Um, the museum, so it developed originally with these oral histories, originally as a tenant, became an official part of the entire building uh, and, and infrastructure. So the executive director here is the executive director of everything. Mm -hmm. I report to the executive director, but I'm given relative free reign to direct the museum within it. But we've really worked hard for the past, um, well, five years since I've been in the museum, but the last the last decade since I've crossed the threshold here to really um, not be so siloed. When the building first opened, it was because the Heritage Center was the mothership and the museum was a tenant. Mm. And even when they joined forces, there was definitely an us and them uh, division between the culture side and the museum side. But more and more in the last decade, there's been a real... Um, melding as it should be it is one campus it is one entity and so we and we do we have cultural exhibits as well as the social justice and the heritage so and the cultural exhibits are not um, separate from the social issues or anything like that so we've got a team now who um, well, actually, our executive director, Kara Goshinmon, started as the education coordinator in the museum here. So, you know, there's been, a, and our education coordinator is also the cultural programs um, coordinator. So there's a real um, morphing and melding and unification of all the different sides hmm. of this place. And it informs the exhibits that we do, the programming that we do, and um, concurrently, 
our biggest cultural events are festivals, our matsuri, our Nikkei matsuri, which normally takes place on the Labor Day weekend. Mm-hmm. From the sounds of it, the the development of, of the collection and the, and the museum is one that uh, has been fairly consistent over time, the oral stories, things of this nature. Are you finding blind spots within the collection, things that were not collected that you're kind of going back around on um, to get represented in the collection more? Because there is such a fissure in the trajectory of the um, settlement of Japanese into Canada, you know, they the, the first official immigrant is marked as 1877. Although there were earlier arrivals, they just weren't migrating to live here permanently. Uh, but 1877 is kind of the marker. So from 1877 until 1942, there were many, many years of establishment of a very um, thriving community. And in with Canada's participation in the Second World War and the rising racism, which actually goes back to the late 1800s, or like from first settler contact, there were, there were um, anti-Asian sentiment, anti-non-white sentiment, uh, racism that all cultures of color experienced. But the Japanese in particular um, faced series of obstacles in terms of being recognized as citizens of Canada, even though by 1942 there was a whole second generation of Canadian born in the community. And so in 1942, with the Canada's entry into the war after the events in the Pacific and you know, the most famous is Pearl Harbor, um, there was the mass expulsion, the forced dispersal, and the subsequent dispossession of an entire community from the West Coast. There was this 100-mile restricted zone where you couldn't be within 100 miles of the coast if you were Japanese Canadian. And uh, the entire population was rounded up and put into um, internment camps, which some folks like to call concentration camps or road camps, work camps, and a small population were also put into prisoner of war camps um, in the east. Because of that departure and because when that dispersal happened, people were only allowed to take what they could carry. And they were told it was temporary and that everything would be kept in safekeeping, the entire community cooperated and left uh, with what they could carry, with the belief they would be able to come back to their homes. And of course, then the dispossession happened, which is what my next exhibit is all about. Uh, But because of that, there are very precious, but very few objects, artifacts from that time. But we do have a very good collection of that time. The gap is actually post-war, when people were just trying to survive. They had lost everything. And in the years of rebuilding, there are very few stories recorded. There are very few um, objects that... We're starting to see it now, because of course that generation is now aging out. And there is a time sensitivity to capture more uh, second and third generation stories because they are the la- well the most elderly of the third generation 
and the youngest of the second generation are the only people who lived through those traumatic times of the 1940s. So once they go, their, story, their first person experience stories are gone. So that's a gap that we're trying to rapidly um, fill to the best of our capacity. And also we openly put out calls for donations for people clear out their parents or grandparents basements, attics, what have you, um, if they find photographs, objects, documents, recordings, films, anything that they don't want to keep, we ask that they at least let us know. We can't take everything, uh, but it breaks our hearts when we see things come up on eBay or Craigslist. Um, someone rescued through a flea market uh, a Kakinuma ceramic that he was a very famous uh, Japanese-Canadian ceramicist, but little known, you know, to the general public. And we've actually featured him in our Nikkei exhibit. And one of my staff found an object in a flea market, had the foresight to actually pick it up, and, you know, has donated it to the collection. But things like that, you know, there's... But the fact is, um, because of the trauma of the Second World War, because of the forced dispossession dispersal, um, because of the silencing of an entire generation, the stories haven't necessarily trickled down to the younger third or the current fourth or the older fifth generation that exists in Canada today. You know, when homes are being cleared out because people pass away, sometimes extended family just don't know or they're discovering their stories. So that's the gap. The photos that you see in this room, mm. um, oh, sorry, not those photos, but there's there's another wall mm. in one of our multi-purpose rooms that has photos very similar to that that were taken at photo studios mm. and primarily in Cumberland. And they are the result of glass negatives that were discovered in a garage sale. And apparently, the owner of the tiles in the garage sale had bought them at some type of a flea market or secondhand market to actually create a greenhouse. He was not interested in the fact that they were negatives. He just wanted the glass tiles. And he was actually scraping off the negatives, but it was too um, time consuming. It was actually the original curator, Grace Aiko Thompson, here, who was informed about this box of glass negatives that appeared to have Japanese-Canadian content, and she was able to retrieve them, repatriate them, actually have them processed, and the result are some really incredible heritage films, uh, photographs. We are like a squeaky wheel, you know, in all of the, um, we have our own um, section of the Bulletin magazine, which is a monthly publication put out for the Japanese-Canadian community. We also, uh, up until this spring, the Vancouver Shinpo was a Japanese language paper. They've now gone just digital. Nikkei Voice out of Toronto, Discover Nikkei out of Los Angeles. These are all very um, Japanese ancestry-specific um, platforms, but we've always put the word out, the call out for anything, for anything important to heritage mm. is, you know, something that we, we welcome. Mm. 
We have national in our name, not because of federal funding, but because we are national in scope mm. and responsibility. The way we collect, it is story-based, it is family-based. So we're not trying to amass the largest collection of samurai swords or, you know, like that's not our mandate, that's not our our collection policy. Our policy is to preserve, actually our, our mandate, our mission is to honor, preserve and share uh, Japanese culture and Japanese Canadian history and heritage. And then we like to add on the very grand blue sky goal of for a better Canada. Um, but that's the way that the collections have gone so far. One really exciting new acquisition, and it's not so new, we've had films uh, donated in our collection for quite some time, but a series of films was really at risk. And through a library in Archives Canada, digitized, it's called DHCP, is their, their granting program, we were able to preserve more than 40 films and have them digitized. Mm. And we've been rolling them out to the public through a series called Nikkei Mubi, but we continue to promote it uh, online and it's had a lot of uptake through some local media and you can find the links through our research portal on our website. But we have added these 40 new moving images to our roster of collections the collect the whole purpose is not just to collect it's to preserve them and make them accessible so um, that's been really really exciting and that's the newest acquisition the one before that was of course and Gomer Sunahara's seminal um, book politics of racism which she donated all of her research and background materials including the cassette player which is currently in the Nikkei exhibit with her some sampling of her tapes and with the promise that we would turn her book into an ebook, which we have successfully done. That was with the help of uh, funding from Metro Vancouver and digitization support from the UBC's Irving K. Barber. So those types of discoveries in our archives have been exciting. We're opening the Broken Promises exhibit, which looks at the mass dispossession. So not the dispersal, which is the interment story, which is something we, we are constantly looking at and retelling in new and innovative ways, but the dispossession has been researched uh, finally by a um, cross-Canada team of academics and cultural institutions and organizations like ours, um, museums, and it's a big project called Landscapes of Injustice. Mm. But the exhibit, Broken Promises, my co-curator is uh, Leah Best with the Royal BC Museum. We are opening this fall. Um, the exhibit is grounded in four years of diverse research covering legal land titles, GIS, oral histories, you know, you name it. There's a whole broad spectrum of analysis that has gone into it. But one of my, um, I guess, treasures of the collection, shall we say, is a decade ago, uh, for the 10th anniversary, a uh, family was honored, uh, well actually an individual was honored, honored posthumously, Eikichi Kagetsu was considered the logging baron before the 1940s. He immigrated in the um, early 1900s and by the 40s had developed massive logging. He had Fannie Bay logging and actually he introduced Fannie Bay oysters <laughs> to BC yeah. 
and he was um, a leading businessman, a leading sponsor of workers from Japan into Canada, a leader in the logging industry. His uh, probably his single most highest competitor would have been Macmillan, who ended up um, getting all of Kagetsu's or most of Kagetsu's properties mm. after the uh, when the dispossession happened. He was probably the single most dispossessed individual uh, because he had been here so long and it had amassed so much um, industry and, and had established you know, himself quite a bit. His family had donated um, to our museum. They were dispersed all across Canada and the United States. The direct line from Eikichi Kagetsu lived in New York and North Carolina. Uh, his son had written and researched and written uh, a biography of his father, his youngest son. And uh, Jack Kagetsu had just passed away of some um, serious terminal illness. So in 2010, when this place was celebrating its 10th anniversary, uh, the, the anniversary uh, annual anniversary celebrations are usually a fundraising event, and it's centered around a community award program. And that year, the award posthumously was being given to Eikichi Kagetsu. So the Kagetsu family, the primary family, came here. And uh, that was the year that I was the acting executive director. And that was my first gig, to host this 10th anniversary celebration. And that family donated um, money, but also asked the museum to publish Jack's book. Mm. And I remember Beth Carter meeting with the family. I just had a cursory meeting with them. And I remember sitting in and hearing this promise that the museum would do their best to try and get the book published. And what would come with it was all of Jack's research materials, but that they were all in North Carolina. So the if the museum could arrange to pick them up or have them deliver, that they were all going to be offered up to the museum. When I was back at Nikkei Center in uh, 2015 as the present museum director curator, I had a personal opportunity to be in New York, and I asked uh, the former director curator, had that collection ever been picked up? Mm -hmm. Had anything happened with the book? And it hadn't. But that was the year we were uh, um, starting year two of Landscapes of Injustice also. And Eikichi Kagetsu being one of the most severely dispossessed individuals, I just felt there was something there. Mm -hmm. So we do, we managed to, we rented a car, we managed to get down there, we managed to get the collections. Uh, Linda and I in our DIY archival in the place we were staying with, I don't even think we had masks, we had gloves. We should have had masks because half of the material was moldy, like we had to deal with all of that triage on the ground. And, um, and as luck and timing would have it, because I was an active partner on the Landscapes of Injustice project already and partnered with the University of Victoria, the UVic Library and Publishing Services took a great interest in this book, and it was the direct subject matter. So the, the stars aligned, basically. Yeah. You know, in 2010, the timing wasn't right, the resources weren't there, despite the generosity of the Kagetsu family. Uh, and in 2015, we not only had these, this treasure trove of research materials, original handwritten journals, photographs, things like that. We also had the dedicated research time and funding through SHRC, through the grants, 
to uh, process this. So, ja uh, sorry, Eikichi Kagetsu is one of the seven core narrators mm -hmm. who we follow in uh, the Landscapes of Injustice Broken Promises exhibit. Mm -hmm. What are the next 10 years for the Nikkei Center as, as you see them? <laughs> it's a very good question. First of all, we need to, uh, building and maintenance, you know, the nuts and bolts. You, Kara Goshenmon, our executive director, could speak more to that. Our building is 20 years old, and I'm actually really impressed with how new it still looks. I mean, yes, the carpets could be, you know, replaced and things like that, but the bones are good, you know? Uh, even with our generous expansion, thanks to Yoshiko Karasawa last year, we did it within the existing footprint. We had some blue sky architectural um, sketches presented to us that would give us an amazing separate museum building on this property, but it would require um, several zeros behind that donation that we received, So, and it would take several years to actually get to that. Also. Bigger is not necessarily better, uh, but what we are trying to do is grow. In Over the next 10 years, I would love to see the museum team really supported with people power. You know, I am the sole I, director slash curator. It would be amazing to work with even a team of curators, even if there was one other person who had the curatorial input, but then if we could develop um, residencies or work more closely with the um, universities, the museum programs, the art programs, which we do at a grassroots level. I've got some very um, great new friends at the Emily Carr University and through the Landscapes of Injustice, uni the, the uni all the universities that were involved what have given us access to digital talent and design talent and 3D rendering and things like that. Um, but I'd love to see the infrastructure team supported and solidified. Our genealogy expert, our research archivist, um, she has been trying to retire from here for a long time, but we don't let her go. She is uh, prime right now to train other um, professionals who could keep that strength, that core and unique um, service that we offer going if we had the resources to build that. So I would love to see things like endowed staff positions, kind of the way the performing arts you know, have that. Uh, actually, some museums like the Vancouver Art Gallery and other museums do have uh, named curatorial, you know, positions and things like that. I'd love to see our archival team have permanent support. Uh, it, our numbers always double, triple, depending on grants, summer students, things like that. But each t and it's great because we get to engage a whole new generation who hopefully remain attached to us as they move on with their professional lives. But you have to train them new. You have, you know, there's there is. Um, efficiencies of time and energy that if we had an in-house team that was stronger at the core, more work could be done. And even though I say bigger is not necessarily better, our temporary deposits were backlogged for about 10 years, actually. And even the Landscapes of Injustice project, which is a seven-year project, which is just coming to a close, we've, and they've done an amazing job, we could keep going for probably another 50 years and still have not completely unearthed all the relevant stories mm -hmm. to this. Um, 2022 is going to be the 80th anniversary of internment. 
Um, so every milestone year will be an opportunity for perhaps some renewed interest in funding and projects. Um, I would love to see a viable community arts program here. We don't have the space or the resources for that, although we get a lot of requests by you know, local artists who would love a little pop-up shop to uh, we used to do something called Bloom, which was an annual fundraiser for the museum around art. But event-based fundraising is really not the most efficient way to go. And it was just a one-off every year anyways. Our education resources have um, grown exponentially, and especially with pandemic pivots, we're really um, coming up with some innovative virtual tours, digital offerings. Um, take home, well not take home, at home um, sort of homeschooling type kits in our culture and, and uh, in our programs. But that whole area, rather than being just DIY, it would be lovely to have it be more solidly based, you know, mm -hmm. professionally created and all of that. So those types of resources, I don't think, you know, once we get to the other side of our current state of the pandemic, those new and innovative offerings aren't going to go away. People are going to have an expectation mm -hmm. that they will still be available and will improve. Mm -hmm. So, you know, all areas, I think the basics were really laid by our founding fathers and our mission hasn't deviated for that. I think we will still remain true to that mission because even present day will become history in a hundred years. And that's back to your question about the gaps. I think part of the gaps, not only what was the community trying to um, rebuild and were struggling, but it was present day. They didn't think their photos were of any interest to anyone else or, you know, it's just life, right? But very quickly, uh, especially as we look back on even less than a hundred years of history, there's some really, really important lessons from the 40s that are not only um, important to not forget, but are more relevant today than ever. So our work isn't nearly done yet. Well, Sherry, thank you very much for taking the time to sit down with me today. And, My uh, pleasure. And we wish you all the best with the Nikkei Center. Thank you.